can be seated. If you have a, a copy of the Bible, I'd encourage you to open that. Uh, we were gonna, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter four this morning. We're gonna read a good chunk of that chapter of the Bible from Hebrews chapter four. Uh, but I wanted to, to share a few things uh, before we, we turn our attention to this text. One is I wanted people, I uh, wanted to say, where is the Hudson family at? Where are you guys at? Over here. Uh, Jace Hudson and his wife Jenny are here this weekend with us and their children. Uh, I mentioned last Sunday, if you were here, that they were going to be with us. Uh, Jace is a, a pastor at one of our sister churches in Northeast Ohio within our denomination, has recently started serving as our regional leader. Uh, so the role that a brother named Ken Mellinger uh, used to play that some of you met, uh, Jace has begun service in that role and is spending time with us this weekend. And we didn't want him to have responsibilities of preaching and things like that. He gets to do that enough. Uh, at his church, just wanted it to be a sweet weekend to get to know them, for them to be able to worship with us. So uh, thanks for being with us, brother, and, and your family. We're grateful for you and your service uh, in your church, and even in our denomination, we're thankful for you. Uh, and the other folks I wanted to kind of re-welcome, at least for this weekend, is Adam and Claire Pennard are here. Uh, they are members of our church, but this school year, they're down in Louisville, Kentucky, attending the Pastors College that our denomination hosts there in Louisville. As we continue to pray about and hope for a potential church plant, back here closer to Warsaw down in North Manchester, but we're grateful to have you guys here with us this weekend. Uh, we have been praying for you. We'll continue to pray for you, and we're thankful that you're being diligent in your studies. We're excited for your baby to arrive within the next few months, and we'll continue to pray for you all while you're away, and look forward to when you can return to us more fully uh, at the end of the school year. But thanks for being with us this morning. All right, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. We're going to go from verse 1 all the way down through verse 13. And then next Sunday, uh, Pastor Jake is going to finish with the last few verses of that chapter, uh, so you can look forward to that as well. But I wanted to, to begin before we read the actual text itself with a, a quote that I read many years ago that some of you may be familiar with. It's from the writings of a very famous man, a very influential man named Augustine, uh, who was an early church father who wrote many works that have had deep impacts around the world and, and, and Christian thinking, but there's one sentence that he wrote uh, that has, a, has had a really deep impact upon me that's, that's uh, been read um, by people throughout many generations and had an impact on them because I think it resonates with our experience as human beings. And this is what he said. He didn't say it in English, of course, but this is in an understandable way for us. It's like he was speaking to God and he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Uh, there is so much packed into that. Uh, he, he's describing the, the reality of how we were created, right? As human beings, we were created to be at rest with God, at peace with God. We were created to be in union with God. We were made for himself. But he's also describing in a very short way our experience as human beings, that that's not the reality that we live in, in our fallen world as sinners, that there is a restlessness in our hearts, right? Not just even in our bodies, but in our very core of our being. There's this rest we were made for to experience with God, but we lack it. And we try to find it in all sorts of other places and people and experiences and things other than God himself, uh, so we know that. I think many of you live that. I have lived that a different part than God. But that quote ends with the, the sweet reminder that we actually can find and experience that rest. 
that we were made for, that until we find our rest in you, that that actually is something we can be granted by God, is the thing we were made for we actually can enjoy. And so this uh, is true. These things Augustine said are true, not just because Augustine said them, though, right? Augustine was a wise man, brilliant man, far surpasses any of us in the room, I think is safe to say, but things aren't true just because Augustine said them. Uh, He said some things that are wrong. Uh, But the things that the Spirit of God says are true. And the the things that we're going to see today from the Holy Spirit that are recorded for us in Hebrews 4 are the grounds by which Augustine could say something like that. That that we were made for rest. We were made for rest with God. How we can't experience that in any other place other than him how we actually can be restored to that. We can be granted this rest that our soul longs for. And so we're going to see in this text those very truths that I think Augustine was trying to relay uh, to us. We're going to see articulated by the Spirit himself through the author of the book of Hebrews. So in a second, I'm going to read this, but I want you to know where we are in the Bible. If you haven't been with us the last few Sundays, where we are in the Bible, what's going on here. In a quick nutshell, uh, this book was written as a letter, almost like a sermon of sorts, but a letter that was sent to these early Jewish Christians. So within a couple generations of when Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, there were these early Jews who actually came to faith in him and who had put their trust in this Jesus as their savior. But as life kept going on and as suffering came to them, there was these temptations for them to walk away from Jesus, for them to kind of step aside aside from him and maybe go back to their old ways of thinking to revert to the more respectable practices of of Jewish uh, life rather than this new way of Christianity. They were tempted to fall away. But this author of Hebrews, who we don't even know who he is or what his name was, what he wrote to them, what he was trying to communicate to them again and again and again was their need to persevere in faith, their need to press on in faith to the very end of their life and even into eternity, to not abandon Jesus. And we're going to see in today's text, like we see in almost every part of this book, uh, that the author of the book of Hebrews is constantly referring back to the Old Testament because these were Jewish Christians. They were Hebrews that he's writing to. And so we're going to see even what I'm about to read. He's going to reference multiple Old Testament stories, Old Testament texts. You're going to see he's going to quote Genesis chapter 2 about God resting on the seventh day. He's going to refer to Joshua, uh, the man who led the Israelites into the promised land. He's going to refer to Psalm 95, uh, which he started with back in chapter 3. He's going to uh, kind of pepper this whole text with Old Testament references. And what he's doing here that you're about to hear me read is he's pivoting. In chapter 3, he had been firm with these warnings toward them, that there is this rest of God that you need to enter into. Um, But he had warned them that there is a real possibility that you could be held out of it, that you could be shut out of that rest of God. He was warning them. As he turns into chapter 4, it's going to shift more from warning to promise. There's still these notes of warning that we'll see, but there's this more promise that there is a rest that is available to you. There is a rest that God has established that you can enter into. And so he holds out more of a promise. Chapter three was more warning. Chapter four is more promise that there is a rest that it can be entered. Things are not true just because I say them either. So I I want you to hear from the word of God, Hebrews chapter four, verses one through 13. So follow along in your copy of the text as, as I read this part of the inspired word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, 
Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. I want to to summarize what I believe the author is communicating here with two very simple points, and this is just going to be the outline for what what I share uh, from this text. Two very simple points that are simple in nature, but I hope have a deep impact upon us as a church. The first is going to be that God's rest is open. God's rest is open, and after a little while, we're going to see the simple command from this text, but it's important that we should strive to enter it. So those are going to be the two ideas, that God's rest is open, that it's enterable, Uh, but then we're going to see this command from this text to strive to enter it. And so I want to start by unpacking what I believe uh, he is saying about the rest of God, God's rest actually being open and being accessible to his people. Uh, The author wants them, make no mistake, he wants them to take absolutely seriously the possibility that they could be shut out, they could be closed off from the rest of God. That's what, if you were here last Sunday, we talked a lot about that, that there's this threat, there's this potential that unbelief can can lead to a lack of entering the rest of God. Uh, He says that warning in verse one, right? He says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Right, So he, he's warning them again, but that's not going to be the dominant note he hits. But he says even down in verse 11, he's wanting them to be sober-minded to know. Look, he says at the end of verse 11, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that the people in the wilderness generation fell. Uh, so he, he's making very clear to them again that they could. there's a reality of the potential of being closed out of the rest of God. But the question that they needed to think about and that we need to think about is, 
is God's rest actually open to us? We know we could be shut out of it. I think that's probably not a question that many of us doubt. We could be shut out of it, but is it actually open? Like, is it accessible to us? Can we enter in to the rest of God? And the question of whether something's open or closed is one we deal with on a regular basis, right? Like, if you need to know whether a store is open or something, you can Google it, and it'll tell you real quick it's either open or closed. You can either go to the place or you can't. Uh, we used to live in a town with a Chick-fil-A, okay? And when we would go, there was a time or two, I really wanted Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, and we drove to the restaurant, and I think, whoa, this is a short line. We're gonna get through here real fast. I pull up to the, the speaker to try to get some food quick, and the store obviously is closed. If you know anything about Chick-fil-A, it's closed on Sunday. Uh, so no matter how much I wanted Chick-fil-A, like if you wanted Chick-fil-A today, you could drive all the way to Fort Wayne, right? You could really be, have this hunger in your heart for the Lord's chicken and you could go to the door with a smile on your face and you could like think you're going to open it and you are not going to get it like it is not open to you no matter how much you want it to be open to you right and so no matter how much we want the rest of God no matter how much we long for it desire it the real question is is it actually open like is it accessible just because we want it to be doesn't make it so Right? And so we have to hear from God, is his rest actually open to us? Like, is it something we can even enter into? And the, the resounding answer in this text is yes, it is open. That the rest of God is something you can enter into. It's something that we can enter into. Look at the start of the text, verse one, right? He starts out by saying, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. That's how he starts his whole text, is that the promise of entering God's rest still stands. It still remains open, that, that we have this invitation to enter into the rest of God. It wasn't just something given to ancient people. It wasn't something just given to Israelites. It's something that is given to all of us, that the, the, the possibility of entering into the rest of God still stands. But what he's wanting them to note is that this rest that is open to them, that's accessible to them, is deeper and more profound than they could ever have imagined. Uh, they had such shallow hopes. We have such shallow hopes for rest. Uh, we, we're, we settle for such trivial forms of rest. But what he's wanting to do in this text is to show them that there is a deeper rest of God than they could ever imagine that is open to them. Not just some shallow, flimsy experience of rest, but eternal rest, the rest of God himself. And he does this through some intricate arguments and some referring back to the Old Testament. I'm just gonna kind of skim along the surface of what he's doing here, but there are some deep, profound things he's doing and how he points them back to the Old Testament. But I'd summarize it this way, of him trying to point them to this deeper rest that's open to them. As he's trying to point to the two rests that they had experienced as Israelites uh, and trying to show them that both of those were just kind of these hollow forms that are pointing ahead to that deeper rest, a truer rest, an eternal rest. And those two rests that he's going to refer back to are the Sabbath rest and then the rest of living in the land of Canaan. Those are two different types of rest that Israelites had experienced, that they had been given, the Sabbath and then life in the land of Canaan. And so first, talking about the Sabbath, that weekly rhythm that they had on the seventh day, resting from their works. He, he go, the writer of Hebrews hearkens back to that in verses three and four, right? He, he's referring back, especially the, starting at the end of verse three, 
He says that God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, right? That's referring back to day seven of creation, that God finished his work of creating. And then he makes it more explicit in the very next verse of what he's referring to. In verse four, I love how he introduces Old Testament quotes. He just says, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. This is Genesis 2-2, what we call Genesis 2-2. He quotes and says that God rested on the seventh day from all his works, right? And so he's referring back to day seven of creation. After God created day one, two, three, four, five, six, when you get to the start of Genesis chapter 2, on the seventh day, it says what he just quoted here, that God rested that day from all his works, right? That, that, he, uh, that he shifted from creation to resting. And I would just note a couple of things. When God rested, it's not as if God just stopped doing things, right? It's not as if God had been really busy and then just got tired or something, and then he just kind of closed up shop day seven and just waits till day eight and then picks it back up again, something like that. No, this rest of God wasn't a ceasing of activity. How I would suggest to understand it is more shifting from exertion to enjoyment, that might be a way to say it. That he, he shifted from this activity of creating things, not to nothing, not to inactivity, but to enjoying what he had just made, to enjoying fellowship with the, the creatures that he had made, to enjoy the world that he had spoken into existence. It was a shift from creating, exerting himself, if we can speak that way, of God, to enjoying what he had created, to resting, enjoying what he had created. And so this author points out, though, why he hearkens back to the Sabbath rest that would have been this regular rhythm for the people of God, for the, for the Israelites who are, are reading this letter, was that he wanted them to see from Psalm 95, which he started quoting back in chapter 3, and he quotes again several times here in chapter 4. He's wanting them to see something in Psalm 95, which was written thousands of years after day 7. It was written thousands of years later by, he says, by King David. He says that in verse 7. When David wrote Psalm 95, he speaks of God still talking about his rest as if it's still a real ongoing thing, that it wasn't just something that happened on day seven and then day eight he got back to working again, but that there was this rest of God that started on day seven after he finished creating that is continuing even up to the day of King David. Thousands of years later. And now the author of Hebrews is saying that rest is still happening today when he wrote that in the first century. And I can with confidence say to you today that God's rest, God is still resting in that same way. That he didn't ever stop. That that rest never closed up. There was no shut door of it. It's fascinating if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. You all have probably read this before. There's this rhythm of there was evening and there was morning the first day. Right? And then there was evening and there was morning the second day. And it goes on through the six days. And when you get to day seven, and it says that God rested from his works, guess what it doesn't say? It doesn't say there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. It's like it's left open-ended. Like that God rested and he continues to rest after that. It's not just a temporary rest, but this ongoing eternal rest of God. Of enjoying himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Enjoying what he has created. There's this eternal rest 
of God that has been open not since day one, technically, but since day seven. Uh, God's rest has been open and continues to be open even to this very day. And so that Sabbath rhythm of every seven days resting was never intended to just be about stopping work. It was never intended to just be about what you don't do. It was to be a pointer to the rest of God. Like that, that there is this rest that he's enjoying and that he invites you to join in as well. Of, of enjoying him, of enjoying what he has made and not just striving, 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 but enjoying God and enjoying his creation. The Sabbath was a pointer to a deeper eternal rest that human beings were made for, a rest with God. But that second rest that the Israelites would have been familiar with, that God had given to them, it was a real rest, was the rest of living in the land of Canaan, living in the land of promise. And so he hearkens back to that experience that the people of God would have known as well. If you go, we went through the book of Deuteronomy last school year. That some of you were around when we went through that book. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, which was given to the people of God right as they were about to go finally into the promised land, that land of promise was talked about as a place of rest. It was explicitly talked about that way. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, God spoke of the land of Canaan as a land of rest, as a land of rest from their enemies explicitly, he says. And so when they finally entered into the land of Canaan, they really did, for a while, get to experience a a semblance, a taste of rest. That they had been slaves in Egypt, they had been under threat, under the thumb of Pharaoh for generations, and God rescued them, And the next generation later, he finally gives them entrance into this land of promise where there's a rest from their enemies. So they had a a taste of that when they lived in the land of promise. But again, this author in Hebrews points to Psalm 95, written by King David, who was ruling as the king in that land of rest. Right, He was at the capital ruling in that land of rest, that land of promise. And David, as he wrote Psalm 95, is still talking about a different type of rest that they're not yet experiencing. A type of rest they could either enter into or that they could be held out of. And it wasn't then just the rest of Canaan, because they were already enjoying that. It was a deeper rest, a more eternal rest, the rest of God that David was saying we can either enter into or we can be shut out of. This land of Canaan that we're living in, it's a sweet land of rest, but it's not the rest that we really were made for. It's not this eternal, deep rest. It's not the rest of God. And so the Sabbath and then the promised land were these real experiences of rest, but they were not these ultimate experiences of rest. They were, they were to be pointers to a deeper rest, an eternal rest that God's people could enter. Six, that... Because he's been quoting Psalm 95, how God said there are some who he will refuse entrance into his rest and saying, you will be shut out if you do not believe upon me and my promises. Verse 6 says, it remains for some to enter it. There, there is some who will enter into that rest of God, into that eternal rest of God. And so, uh, though God has said some shall not enter into that eternal rest, he has said some will. And as long as today is called today, there is opportunity for us who are alive to enter into that rest, to, to be granted entrance into that rest of God. And I have good news for any of you who are in this room, all of you who are in this room. 
is not just that, that it is hypothetically open to you, but that you yourself uh, can be granted entrance into that rest of God. That it's not just something open to other people, but it's something that you could have entrance into. Because the way we can know that it has actually been open to us, that we can actually enter into it, is because of something that Jesus Christ has done for us, or some things Jesus Christ has done for us. It's not just hypothetical, us speculating that this rest of God is open to us. We know it is open to us and that we can be granted entrance into it. Uh, and Jesus is not named specifically in this text. You may have noticed that. He'll definitely be mentioned next Sunday. I'm kind of jealous of Pastor Jake to get to preach next Sunday. Already looking forward to that. But Jesus is not explicitly referenced in today's text. But I would suggest to you, he actually kind of is uh, in verse 8. Uh, I draw your attention to verse 8. So verse 8 is where the author is pointing back to when they went into the promised land, right? When they finally got to go into this land of rest. And he's t- the leader in that day that took them into the land was Joshua, right? That, that was the name of the man who God used to lead them into the land of promise. Some of you may know this, but Joshua's name when it's translated into Greek, which is what this would have been written in, guess how you would, pr- this is going to be a butchering pronunciation of this, but the way, you would, the way that they would have read this aloud when they were reading verse 8 is that if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken of a day later on. Joshua's name gets carried forward into the New Testament and into Greek. Jesus' name is the same. It's Yeshua or Jesus when you go into Greek. It's the same name. Like that, this, so this man, Joshua, Jesus, who had led them into the land of promise, he really gave them entrance into the land of promise. But what the author of Hebrews is going to show us again and again and again throughout this letter is that the better Yeshua, the better Joshua, the better Jesus, he has actually gained us entrance not into Canaan. He has gained us entrance into heaven. And that is far better, infinitely better, because that is where we experience the rest of God. It's not in some geographic place here on this planet, but it's in heaven in the very presence of God. And Joshua may have led them, that Joshua may have led them into the promised land. This Joshua, this Jesus who has come later, has, can lead us into heaven itself into God's presence, into God's rest. And it is a glorious thing. And the way Jesus did it, The way that we can know he has entered into that rest is that he came to this earth and visibly in front of onlookers lived 33-ish years of perfect obedience to God, earning nothing but the favor and blessing and reward of God the Father. And then at full-grown adulthood, when it came time for him to suffer and die, he laid down his life at the cross. He gave up his life. He, he laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins, bearing the guilt that you and I should have upon us, taking the judgment of God the Father upon himself so that we could have it removed from us, so that we could, have it, we could be free of the judgment of God. He bore it in our place. And I want you to think of two things in particular that Jesus said as he was dying upon the cross. That, that speak to this reality that he was actually about to, on the other side of death, enter into the rest of God and that he would invite us to join him in that rest. Remember two things that Jesus said upon the cross. Pastor Larry, I think, already referenced this one earlier. But in John 19, verse 30, 
right before Jesus breathes his last, the the last words that, that he said was, it is finished, right? What he was communicating in that was that the work that God sent him to do, that God the Father sent him to do, including suffering, for us, was now complete. Just like God the Father had completed his work of creation, days one through six, and then entered into rest after it, Jesus, as he's laying down his life upon the cross, is saying, my work has been completed. My work, even of suffering for my people, is finished. It is done. There is nothing left for me to do, to gain reward, to gain forgiveness, to gain resurrection even. I have done it all. It is finished, and he finished the work of God as he breathed his last upon the cross. But then this other thing that he said right before he died is glorious. I, I was contemplating that this, this, this week. Is if you read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 43, there's this reminder that there were these thieves on either side of Christ, right? And, and he speaks to one of them, and he says this to this man who's about to die. This criminal, this man who should be guilty before God, who should be held out of God's rest. He says to him, to this fellow man, he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Jesus knew he was about to enter into that rest of God, having finished the work that he was sent to do. He knows he's about to enter into it once and for all. And more than that, in saying that to that man, it's like he could say it to us, is that he will allow others to join him there, that he will allow others to join him in that rest of God, to go to be with God himself, not because we deserve it, but because he bought it for us. And so he says both, it is finished, my work is done, I'm about to rest I'm about to enjoy the fruit of what I've done. But he invites others to join in that rest, right? It's not just for him to enjoy himself as the reward, but for him to share with us. And when he was raised from the dead three days later, uh, he uh, proved once and for all, God the Father proved once and for all, yes, like I approve of him. He is entering into my rest. And 40 days after that, guess what? Jesus ascended to heaven and is with God now. That reality that all of us as human beings were made for, Jesus is experiencing now. This rest, this eternal rest with God the Father, and he invites us to join him in it. It's like he has opened the way for us to return to God, for us to enter into that rest and says, come, Like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest for your souls, right? Jesus invites us to enter into that rest. He has gained us entrance into that rest of the people of God. So God's rest has been opened for us, but the question remains is how do we enter it? Like, how do we know, how do we actually enter into that rest? Just because just Chick-fil-A is open tomorrow doesn't mean you're going in, right? Like, there's still action that just because something has been open to you and access has been given, we actually have to take hold of it, right? We actually have to, to latch onto it, right? And so, verse 11, he's been making the point that this rest is open, but verse 11, he gives this command to them. He says, then this is the second point today, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And so he's telling us we can enter. We must strive to enter into that rest, so that final rest of God. And I want to tell you briefly what that means, that, that we strive to enter that rest. Because I think we could grossly misunderstand this. 
We could read that and think, well, it just depends on me. Like, I have to live a life that's good enough for God to let me in. I need to strive to become good enough to get into that eternal rest. That is not, 100% not, what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us, that we need to become good enough. Because if you look back at the beginning of today's text, he makes it crystal clear that it is belief in the promises of God that gains us entrance into that rest. Right? He, he says that explicitly. He says in verse 3, who does he say enters the rest? He says, we who have believed. And what is it he's saying we must believe? Right? If you go back to the verse right before that, verse 2, he makes it clear he's talking about the good news. That means gospel, right? That, that, that there's this message of good news that we must believe in order to enter the rest of God. He, he's not giving us a, th- a list of things you got to do and, and clean up your life to enter the rest of God. He is saying there is something you must believe. And more accurate, there is someone you must believe upon. And that's the person of Jesus. That is what you must believe is this good news That you, a sinner, me, a sinner, can actually enter into the rest of God because of what Jesus has done for us. That is what we must believe in order to enter that rest. And he, verse 2 is a sobering verse because he is making a distinction that it is, what gets us into the rest of God isn't just hearing the good news. It is believing it. It is trusting in it. It is taking hold of it as my own because he makes it clear in verse two, there was some who had, he's talking about the the ancient Israelites who had the good news come to them and he says they heard it, but he says the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He's making a distinction between hearing the good news and believing the good news. You today are hearing the good news of Jesus. I trust if you've been here every Sunday you ever come here, you will hear the good news of Jesus. But what the Lord requires of you is something more than just hearing it. It is actually believing it. It is actually resting your soul on the person of Jesus and what he has done for you. That is what the Lord is calling for in his people. It's not just hearing it, not just assenting to it, but actually believing it, taking hold of the promises of God for you, yourself. If you know me, you know I like to quote Charles Spurgeon a lot. have to insert a Charles Spurgeon quote here. This is uh, so good. He said this, It will not save me, to know that Christ is a savior, but it will save me to trust him to be my savior. I shall not be delivered from the wrath to come by believing that his atonement is sufficient, but I shall be saved by making that atonement my trust, my refuge, and my all. The pith, the essence of faith lies in this, a casting oneself on the promise. This is so important for us because there are so many of us, I was like this for a long time. I I grew up hearing the good news of Jesus and I would have mentally said, yep, I believe those things. I believe those facts about Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe that he died upon the cross. I believe that he rose again. I believe that he ascended to the Father. I believe that he's returning someday. But there was not personally in my heart a resting of my soul in him and what he had done for me. Like that I actually needed forgiveness, not just the world, not just really bad sinners, but I, Mark, needed forgiveness for my sin. 
Like that my guilt had to be dealt with. That, that my wrath, the wrath of God for my sin had to be borne. And that it was by Jesus. There's a huge difference between just believing facts and checking them off and saying these are true of me. Like Christ actually died for me. Like my sin was actually upon him on the cross and I believe he bore 100% of the wrath for it. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Between hearing and believing and I would call upon all of us today to not just hear the good news of Jesus but believe it. Like actually cast your soul, you individually, every person in this room, cast your soul upon Jesus and what he has done for you. That is what gains you entrance into the rest of God. It is by faith that we are united with God and his people, this author says, not just by hearing. So we enter by belief, but he does say, let us strive to enter that rest, right? What is that about? He just literally, verse 10, said that we rest from our works as God rests from his, but then let us strive to enter rest. What? It can feel uh, as if, if he's saying two different things, but all he is saying when he says to strive to enter that rest as he's trying like he does throughout this letter, is to call them again and again and again to keep believing, to keep trusting in Christ. It's not like he's saying, hey, like you need to keep leveling up to greater levels of godliness to make sure you get in the gates. He is saying, keep believing. Like the thing that helps you and allows you to enter into the rest of God, keep doing that. Keep believing, keep trusting in Christ because them in the ancient world and us in our world are going to have constant threats to our faith. We have a real enemy who does not want us to enter the rest of God, who wants to keep as many as he can away from the rest of God, outside of that eternal rest of God, and he will do anything and everything to divert us from the one way that we can enter in. He, he will tempt us to disregard Jesus, to ignore Jesus, to devalue Jesus. He may flip a script and try to encourage us to start trusting in our own righteousness, uh, to, to, to start trusting in our own goodness. Is that, okay, I, I've become good enough, now God will let me in. That is not resting upon Christ. And if Satan can convince you to do that, he will be pleased. And so this author is saying, in striving to enter the rest of God, he's saying, make sure, brothers and sisters, that you keep believing the good news of Jesus. He's not giving them some new thing to do. He's saying, keep believing. Strive to keep believing. When there's temptations that rise up to walk away from Christ, ignore that. Come back to the people of God. Come back to the good news of Jesus. Believe it again. When there's temptation to run after sin, put that to death. Confess it to Christ and run back to him for forgiveness. Keep believing, keep striving to enter the rest of God. So we are to strive to enter. We enter by faith, but we must strive to keep that faith, to keep believing upon that one person who can gain us access to the rest of God. I want to give a few thoughts to these last two verses. This is not going to do justice to verses 12 and 13. These are beautiful, soaring sentences you could spend hours meditating on, thinking about, uh, about the word of God and traits about it and what it can do, its power to do different things. These verses, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, are verses you will see all the time in books on systematic theology, uh, things, and rightfully so. They teach us wonderful things about God's word, about uh, its nature, about its power. But I want you to think for just a moment as we conclude our time here, why are these verses here? 
Like sometimes we just cherry pick verses and we kind of become familiar with them and think, oh yeah, I'm really familiar with these. Like these are probably like that for some of you. Like you've heard these verses 12 and 13 a bunch, especially verse 12. You've probably heard a bunch before, but you've never really thought if you're like me, why is it said where it's said? Like why is it here in the Bible amongst all the other places that it could be in the Bible? Why is it here? Why do we find it here? I want to give a few thoughts. First, he, he gives this, this powerful statement about the, the living nature of the word of God, uh, that, that is living and active. But the question would be, in what ways is it living and active? Like, what is God actually doing with his word? Like, what, is, what are the scriptures actually being used to accomplish by God? And I think what he says, as the sentence keeps unfolding, is not what we often think of as the purpose of the word of God. Often we just quote this and we kind of stop there. The word is living and active, guys. Like it, it, and it is. That is gloriously true. It is alive. God continues to speak through it. But what does he do through it? Often we don't continue the verse, right? He talks about it being sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't use swords much. I don't think I've ever swung a sword, but I think I know what that's getting at, that it can cut both ways and it can cut deeply, right? That, that there is a power, he says, in the word of God to pierce us, right? We might think of it as like something to take against our enemies. I think he's saying it is a sword that can pierce us, like he says, even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. I don't think he's trying to give like an anatomy lesson of how sharp it can actually get into your physical body. He's saying it can go into the core of you. Like it can go deep into your heart, into places no one else can touch because this is God himself speaking. He can penetrate into your heart, into your soul. He can press through some of the outer shelves and the masks that we put on for other people. He can get through those things into the real part of who we are. And then as he continues, it's not just that he can pierce us, but I would say, and we don't often think of the Bible this way, he pierces us sometimes to expose us. Like not just to, to bring healing, although he will, but sometimes he pierces us to expose us, right? He says that it, it pierces to the division of soul spirit, of joints and marrow, then he says, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's like he opens us up to show us our hearts, to say, do you see how messed up your heart is? It's like, you don't trust in me. Like, you don't put your rest in me. Like, you want to do anything and everything but lay down your soul and heart and trust me. You try to find rest in all these other things. And like, the word of God pierces us and like lays us open. And shows us how messed up we are, how sinful we are, how prone to sin we are. It pierces us, it exposes us. That's why I think in 13 he says that no creature is hidden from the sight of God. Like there's none, you could fool me, you could fool other people with your outer godliness. You cannot fool God. Like he knows whether you are trusting in Christ. He knows whether you are resting your heart and your soul and your eternity upon Christ or whether you're just playing a game of religiosity. Like Jesus knows that. He, he, he knows and we all, he says, before God are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is a staggering, staggering statement. Like that God sees our heart, he knows our guilt and he wants us to see it. 
He wants us to know our unworthiness, that we don't deserve the rest of God. We don't deserve the reward that Christ has gained. We don't deserve it. We have to give an account to him someday for our sinful self, right? If that's all we had was those couple verses, I would be hopeless. Like, I have to give an account to God and he sees everything and just lays me bare like I am hopeless. I am toast before this God. Like, he rightfully should bring wrath down upon me. But in the kindness of God, this God who can pierce your heart and lay you open and say, here's the ugliness of who you are. He says, I love you. I sent my son to literally be pierced by a sword, to have nails driven through his wrists and ankles, have a crown of thorns upon his head, and more than that, to bear my wrath for your sin. Jesus did that for you. Nasty, sinful, unworthy you and me. I did that for you. And these ones, us, who should be shut out of the rest of God, God says, come enter my rest. Share in the rest that my son has gained for you. That is good news, right? That is good news that we must believe, that we must rest our souls upon that I am exposed, unworthy before God. I cannot fool him, but nonetheless, he grants me access to his rest. He grants me entrance to his rest. I had this image in my head a lot the last few days. Uh, I was prompted by a movie uh, that's neither here nor there, but uh, I was imagining, you often hear people talk and say just absurd things about the gates of heaven and the pearly gates and who's standing there and how they're gonna, jokes they'll crack or whatever. Uh, That is not what I'm trying to get at, but I did have this image of us uh, seeking to enter the gates of heaven when it comes to the end of our life, when we have to give an account for our life. And I, I was imagining that some of us even if we wouldn't have the audacity to say it it's like we think that there's going to be these masses of people kind of just flooding into the 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 city of God into the heavens and that somehow we're just going to kind of like kind of blend in and like make our way through the masses and just kind of have a hood down and make it through and God's not going to really take note of my unbelief God's not really going to actually judge me God's not ever going to really shut me out of heaven that we're just going to slip by the guards we're just going to fool God somehow if you have any inkling of that thought that somehow you are just going to escape by I want to dispel you of that today like God sees you Like, God knows your guilt. Like, stop trying to fool him. Stop trying to think that you can somehow just make it through. You will not be granted entrance into the rest of God unless you are believing upon his son, Jesus Christ. And today, you can believe upon him. If you have not for the rest of your life, today you can believe upon Christ. And when it comes time for you to be judged before God, you won't have to be nervous You won't have to hope that, man, he doesn't see me, hope that he doesn't uh, take my sin as seriously as I think. You can approach the gates of heaven with confidence because Jesus is already in there. And he has borne the wrath for the punishment that should shut you out. And if you are resting upon him, God will gladly, freely open the gates of heaven to you and share his rest with you. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song, and then I'll leave you with the word of benediction. But let's stand and pray.